Hey folks, this is John Lawrence, and I'm super excited to bring you this series of podcasts. I've collaborated with a couple of DNP students out of Marion University, and they have uh, brought you six educational podcasts on the fundamentals of anesthesia. And I'm so excited to get this out to you. We've been planning this for, I don't know, maybe close to a year, but uh, let me introduce them to you. So, I'm here today on the podcast with Skylar Ruschling. She is a second-year SRNA at Marion University in Indianapolis, Indiana. She attended Ball State University for her undergraduate education, where she earned her BSN in 2013. Skylar went on to work in the medical ICU at a level one trauma center in downtown Indianapolis for five years before returning to school to complete her doctorate of nursing practice degree. She is expected to graduate in May of 2020. And Ashley Scheel is also a second year SRNA at Marion University. She earned her BSN from Purdue University in 2012. Ashley worked as a nurse in the surgical ICU at the Radebush VA Medical Center in Indianapolis for six years before going back to anesthesia school. She is also expected to graduate in May of 2020 with her DMP degree. Uh, Skylar and Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Hey, John. Thanks. Hey everyone, I'm Skylar, and yeah, we're actually part of the inaugural class of um, the first nurse anesthesia program to open in Indiana. Um, so we're on track to earn our DMP degree, and in order to fulfill this degree, we're going to be completing a research project. So ours is titled "Podcasts as a Learning Adjunct in Nurse Anesthesia Education." Hey everyone, it's Ashley here. We became interested in this topic because we found ourselves listening to a lot of podcasts while driving to and from clinicals, and we thought it would be beneficial to be able to listen to foundational anesthesia content geared specifically towards SRNAs. Um, We're going to be measuring the satisfaction of SRNAs within our own program, but we really do hope that these podcasts help other SRNAs and CRNAs as well. Uh, We really want to thank you, John, for allowing us the opportunity to host our podcasts on From the Head of the Bed. Hey, I am so pumped about this. I think you all have done a really good job developing the content, and I can't wait to bring these episodes to people. So let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the shows. All right. Well, Ashley Shield, we're back at it with another podcast. And hey, I got to tell you, I am so excited about this podcast. We're talking about clinical flow from OR setup all the way through pre-op assessments, through uh, getting the patient into the OR, doing an IV induction, and getting the tube into the trachea. I'm so pumped about this. I think it's really going to be helpful for anesthesia learners, first-year SRNAs. It's going to be great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Hey, John. I'm really excited about it, too. So this podcast is really targeted to new anesthesia learners who've never been to clinicals before, and our hope is really to present you with a good idea of what to expect and what to prepare for as a new anesthesia learner. Um, And we definitely don't want to exclude anyone, so it's also a great opportunity for more seasoned providers to remember some of the details that can be forgotten with time. Yeah, so Ashley, we're talking about an anesthesia workstation setup, right? And uh, you've got a mnemonic for that? Yeah, absolutely. So let's pretend it's 6 a.m. and you've just walked into the OR that you're going to be working in that day. Get yourself a mask and you'll be ready to put it on when the instruments are opened by the nurses and those scrub techs. So that mnemonic, John, is Ms. Maids, or uh, it's M-S-M-A-I-D-S, and it's frequently used in order to set up the workstation without forgetting any important components. So let's go through each of those pieces of MS-MADES, which stands for machine, suction, 
monitors, airway, IV, drugs, and special items. So we're going to walk through all these pieces and we'll hit definitely the major areas here, but those finer details or the style and how you may uh, set this up is up for personal, is up for debate or personal preference. There's for sure a standard of care and then there's style that folks develop when performing that standard. So while what we work through is one way to do it, you or your preceptor might have variations on the themes that we're gonna go through here. So let's jump right in here with that M is for machine. So come in in the morning and turn your machine on as well as that end title sampling machine if it happens to be separate for you. Uh, those can take a while to warm up and it wouldn't be great to forget to do that uh, until right before induction, for example. Run that machine self-test or do the manual test. Include the leak test with whatever circuit that you're using that day. So make sure all those pieces of your circuit are well connected. Uh, those are the most common places for a leak. For example, that Y piece in your circuit is super common. Make sure, too, that you go ahead and check for that end title sampling line to be present and connected. That's It's a small piece and it's easy to forget, but it's also one of the most important pieces that you're going to use. Next, check for the levels of your volatile inhalational agents and then absolutely fill them if necessary. Make sure your CO2 absorber isn't exhausted and also change that if you need to. Go ahead and date, time, and initial that if you do change it so that the next person after you knows when that has been done last. Also, you're able to input patient-specific data such as their age and their ideal body weight into the anesthesia machine and that will help you when it comes to turning your machine on uh, in order to be ready for those patients' needs specifically. Yeah, Ashley, that's awesome information about the anesthesia machine. And I just want to prime folks too that you did a really nice podcast that, that jumps so much more in detail on the anesthesia machine and lots of things to think about in terms of how it works, how to troubleshoot it, common stuff that pops up. So be sure to go check that podcast out. Uh, but this was a great, super succinct rundown on how to set your machine up in the beginning of a day. So what's next on the mnemonic? Yeah, John, S is for suction. So ensure that that suction is connected properly. Uh, get your yank hour and make sure that the suction is connected and in proper working order. Um, I just have a little bit of advice for you guys, and that's to put that yank hour right where you want it right now. Because when you, when you come in with your patient, that's something that's so easy to forget because you're worried about a lot of other things. So uh, I like to put it under the pillow or between the mattress and the OR table. Just make sure you keep that yank hour in its sleeve uh, to make sure that it's clean and uh, easily accessible to you in a split second when you need it. Next, we've got M, and that's for monitors. The main four are your blood pressure cuff, your EKG leads, your pulse oximeter, and your end tidal CO2. And there's definitely the potential for more monitors, but we're going to focus on these for the essential for this basic walkthrough. Next up is A for airway. I like to start off with making sure I've got an oral airway somewhere that I can reach it. I like to wrap uh, the oral airway I'm going to use in a tongue depressor to, ins to assist with insertion. I put those in a blue towel and put them up on the top of the machine so I always know what, where they're at, but then they don't get contaminated if I don't end up needing them. Some people use oral airways every time an endotracheal tube is used and some really don't. So this advice is geared toward a situation where manual ventilation during induction isn't effective and the quick use of an oral airway can make that ventilation easier or at least possible. 
Go ahead and choose the correct size endotracheal tube you're going to use for your patient. You want to check that integrity of the cuff by blowing it up with the syringe attached to that pilot balloon. So after the integrity is verified, withdraw that air and leave the syringe attached. A 10 ml syringe is sufficient for an adult-sized tube. Next, some people use stylets and some don't. So if you choose to stylet your tube, um, go ahead and bend the tube into the shape that you want. Some people like that hockey hockey stick shape. I personally think I missed a lot of my beginning intubations because I was adamant on using that shape, whereas now I've discovered that just the natural bend of the curve that it comes in as package works for me. So if you find that something isn't working for you, try something different and hopefully you'll have more success one way or the other. Now you want to choose and verify the functionality of the laryngoscope you plan to use. You want to really make sure that that light is working Make sure it's bright enough, and if it's not, go ahead and exchange those batteries. Next, and probably the most importantly, you want to make sure you have a bag valve mask. So there's nothing really worse than being in an emergent situation without the equipment that you need. And also have other emergency devices available, such as an LMA and a bougie, or some people call it an Eshman. And uh, the video laryngoscope is uh, really an essential emergency tool now. Um, you should for sure know where it's at if it's a shared de device amongst all the ORs and make sure it's always plugged in before you use it. And if you happen to have the privilege of having one dedicated to the OR that you're in, make sure that it works. Make sure that you have the tools that you need to use it, like the specific blade that goes along with it or the blade cover or a specific stylet that fits in with the system that you're using. Yeah, uh, Ashley, I think that's great info. I think that, you know, to kind of sound off on the airway piece that this is all about being prepared to manage any kind of contingency that might pop up with induction. So, you know, like you said, knowing that your blades work, knowing where, if you don't have a video laryngoscope in the room, knowing where it's at, knowing where a difficult airway card is, having a plan A laid out within reachable distance, you know, again, even for masking, so having that oral airway out there, and then also knowing where your plan B is. So if that's an LMA that's in the drawer or a video laryngoscope down the hall in the anesthesia workroom, you know, these things as a first year anesthesia student are really going to help you be prepared to be that airway expert to manage whatever situation might pop up. So great info on airway. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for all those uh, additional little tips and tricks there. Yeah, of course. No worries. Yeah, so I is for IV access. Most patients will for sure come with it with one IV already. And uh, if you need another one, you can either ask those pre-op nurses to put one in for you or get some more experience yourself and set, set up the IV start kit for yourself and go ahead and get that in after induction if that's the case that you need to. So next up, we've got D for drugs. And there's really so many ways you can set up your medications. There's a ton of recipes and a ton of different ways that you can do this. So you'll, of course, have your prepared anesthetic care plan for your patient, but hopefully you'll also be able to communicate your plan with your preceptor like the night before or right before getting all your drugs drawn up, and you'll have a plan ready to go. And if not, it's best to wait until discussing that anesthetic plan before opening too many syringes or drawing up medications that may or may not be used. So let's briefly talk about some medications that are commonly used during the perioperative period. 
um, a future podcast that we're gonna we're gonna put together about just induction medications is in the works. So I'll definitely go into much greater depth with some of these medications um, in the very near future. So a routine traditional setup of medications used during induction will likely include midazolam for pre-medication, fentanyl, lidocaine, propofol, and succinylcholine and or vecuronium or rocuronium. And this is something that is one of the most patient personalized aspects of anesthesia. And for that reason, it's really difficult to give anything but a basic setup like this one. Another really important additional tip I want to give y'all is that it's extremely important to label all of your syringes with the appropriate medication. The concentration, volume, date, time, and initial should also be included. A lot of people place the sticker label on empty syringes, which is totally fine. Just don't write what's in there. Don't put all those the, your initials and all those things that you personally write on there until the medication is actually drawn up. And especially if it's something that you're going to reconstitute, like an antibiotic, for example, don't write on there two grams of Keflex if the Keflex isn't mixed in there yet because someone could come along behind you and think that the Keflex is mixed in and just give the patient saline and, and not know any differently. So be careful about that one. We've got S next, and that's for special items. Those can include the an OG or an NG if it's needed, the bear hugger, a neuromuscular monitor like the train of four box, a biz monitor. And let's take a second to talk about the tape here. Um, I know it's just tape, but there's a lot of different kinds, so let's get a little specific with it. I like to put my eye tape on the mask for easy access. I typically use the clear plastic tape for most people, but I'll, I'll use that blue tape or that paper tape for kids or elderly patients because it's a little less sticky and a little kinder to their skin. I also keep a roll of tape on top of the machine ready to tape my ET tube. I prefer the half inch roll of silk tape, but many people also like the pink tape as well. For sure, user preference and whatever the facility has that you're working at. Next, this is just a really a little personal blurb, but a lot of people do it. Don't stick your tape to the machine. It's pretty gross to have, have it hanging down from your machine and then put it on the patient's face. Um, it also leaves tape residue on the machine and it'll get all dirty and sticky. So for quick access, just go ahead and fold the tape over and make a little tab so you won't need to stick it to the machine. Yeah, Ashley, I'll jump in there on tape. It's crazy to spend so, so much time on, on tape. You know, you think about the big things in the anesthesia that are really important to think about, but I love, I love, I love talking about tape. I love. I'm the I lo same. I do too. <laughs> I am really, really could. I don't know if you could tell, but I'm really passionate no. about not sticking it to the machine. <laughs> no, I, so I'm going to, I'm going to just going to agree with you on that. And, and, and the point I'm trying to make is that while we think about these, uh, you know, the big themes in anesthesia and what we do is professional, something as small and seemingly meaningless as, your tape selection and what you do with it can kind of seem silly to actually like spend time thinking about that. But a couple things I want to, I want to support and highlight that you said, you know, sticking tape on a machine, we know from infection prevention literature that the machine is one of the dirtiest places in the OR. Absolutely. Uh, so my practice, once I learned that is to shift away from, you know, putting eye tape on the machine or the endotracheal tape, like stripped out in a little starter tab on the machine is to just keep the endotracheal tape 
uh, bundled up. In the eye tape, I put on the mask for the circuit because that's essentially clean between cases. And then the other thing I would say about tape, I know this is about machine, uh, about room setup, but I would say just be careful. You know, it's so easy to rush as an sRNA in putting on tape or taking off tape. But uh, the way you tape things is super important. So, so you know, ask for feedback from your instructors on how to tape an endotracheal tube so it doesn't shift or move. And then on eye tape, when you're taking that off at the end of the case, just be really careful. You can you can tear people's um, eyelids and cause bruising and damage and that kind of stuff. So, so that's all I'm going to say. Something as simple as tape, but yet it's worth actually talking about because even the minutia of what we do is important. And that's why what we do is is pro level. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's an ad coming here from the head of the bed brought to you by tape. <laughs> yeah, we are definitely not sponsored by any tape company. But hey, if there's a if there's a tape rep out there that wants to throw some dollars towards this podcast, then maybe you can get your name spliced in here somewhere. Oh, that's too funny. All right. Well, let's get ourselves back on track here. So in addition to tape, we're, we'll set ourselves up with some with a tent probe, whatever kind you think is appropriate for your case, either esophageal, skin, nasal, you choose. Um, and now you want to go ahead and place your endotracheal tube, your laryngoscope, your IV drugs, and any other important items on the anesthesia workstation so that the things that you need become intuitive to you and they're easy to reach during induction. Um, it's helpful to have everything open and positioned so that you can grab it with one hand if you need it. And it's really important also to set up your workstation the same way every single time. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that there's a correct way, because there's not, but the idea is that you form a habit here so that in an emergency, you know exactly where everything is. So now that we've went through all of the pieces here, the Ms. Maids, the machine suction monitors airway iv drugs and special items uh, you'll be prepared to set your room up as well let's move on to pre-op here so the pre-op evaluation becomes definitely a foundation to guide your perioperative care before you ever go and talk to your patient you should have a fairly good idea of what your anesthetic plan is going to look like that pre-op eval is going to be used to make sure that it's safe for the patient to receive anesthesia and to further personalize your plan of care. So go ahead and check that the surgical and anesthetic consents are signed and that the surgical site is marked. Make sure that any important lab draws, blood sugar levels, and things like that are completed or at least pending. And if you're gonna administer any pre-medication or if the nurses are, like a scopolamine patch, for example, that that's in the works or in place already. So, John, what, what do you think about simulating a pre-op eval so the listeners can get a good idea of what that would sound like and get some practice in before doing it themselves? Yeah, I think this is, is great. I think that, you know, it's interesting. SRNAs have a lot of clinical experience as ICU nurses, but coming into a different realm where you're approaching patients from a different angle can be very intimidating in terms of just chatting with patients and doing a pre-op assessment. So I think doing a, a little role play here um, will help anesthesia learners kind of walk through and visualize what that pre-op conversation can look like. So I know you and I have, have planned this and I'll be the patient and you can be the anesthesia provider. So uh, yeah, let's walk through it. 
All right, sounds great. Hi, Mr. Lawrence. Yeah, hey, how's it going? Hi, I'm Ashley, and I'm a nurse in a graduate program studying to become a nurse anesthetist. I'll be working with the anesthesia team to provide your care today. What name do you prefer to go by? Uh, I John is fine. All right, guys, so in this introduction, I've avoided using the term student, which might make some patients nervous, but I've still accurately described my role in this patient's care. So we'll keep going here. Perfect, John. I need to ask what procedure you're having done today. Uh, they're taking my gallbladder out. Okay, great. And I see here that you don't have any allergies. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. No allergies. Okay. And I have your medication list here, and it says you take lisinopril and omeprazole, correct? Yes, that's correct. Great. Could you tell me what you take those for? Uh, I take the lisinopril for my high blood pressure and the omeprazole for heartburn. Okay, and when did you take those last? I took the lisinopril last night, and the omeprazole I take every morning. I took it around 5 o'clock this morning. Okay, cool. So when uh, was the last time you had something to eat or drink then? Uh, I had dinner last night around 7.30, and then I just had a sip of water with my omeprazole uh, this morning. Perfect. Perfect. Do you use any tobacco products or uh, vaping devices? No, I don't. Okay. How about, uh, do you drink any alcohol or use any other drugs? No, other than just the occasional alcoholic drink, you know, socially I don't drink any and I don't use any recreational drugs. Okay, perfect. Okay, so now you're going to go over your, with your patient a brief history. Let's touch on neuro, cardiac, respiratory, uh, GI, any problems with their kidneys or liver, their joints and their muscles, any problems with bleeding and clotting, and then go ahead and ask them if they have any other problems that you should know about that you didn't bring up already. So we'll keep going here. John, have you received anesthesia before? Uh, yes, I have. Okay, have you had any problems with anesthesia like nausea and vomiting or a history of high fevers with you or your family members? No, I haven't. Okay, great. Uh, do you have anything in your mouth that's removable like dentures or a partial, a retainer or jewelry, missing, loose, chipped, or cracked teeth? No. Okay. Can you please smile big so I can see your teeth? Yes. Great. Please tip your head back a little, open your mouth, and stick out your tongue without making a noise. Okay, perfect. Please show me that you can bite your upper lip. Awesome. I'm just going to take a feel here under your chin. So since you guys can't see me, I'm testing for thyromental distance. Okay, now now I'm going to have you sit up, and I'm going to listen to your heart and lungs. All right, John. That's the end of the questions I have, but I, I wanted to explain the care that I'm going to provide to you today. So here you're going to provide a short explanation of what the patient can expect during their perioperative care. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you what I normally say, and you go ahead and add your own variations to this. So John, we're gonna take you back to the OR on this bed and have you scoot over to the OR bed. Next, it's gonna be kind of like a NASCAR pit crew. We're gonna be hooking up all of our monitors to you and checking your vital signs. Medications through your IV will be how you go off to sleep. But first, we want you to breathe in some oxygen through a plastic mask. It will smell kind of like a beach ball because of the plastic, but again, I wanted to assure you it's just oxygen you're gonna be breathing in. After you get off to sleep, I'm going to support your breathing with a device that will be inserted into your airway. I'll be with you the whole time monitoring you and keeping you safe. Throughout your procedure, I'll be giving you medications to help prevent nausea and vomiting, as well as medications to help with the pain. 
When the procedure is over, if everything looks good, which we expect it to, I'll wake you up and take you to the recovery area while you'll be closely monitored for about an hour. After that, you'll go to another recovery area where you will be able to see whoever brought you here today. And I also wanted to let you know that after surgery, it is normal to have pain. We'll do our best to minimize it so that you can so that it can be tolerable for you. Do you have any questions about this process that I've explained? No, I don't. All right. And while anesthesia is very safe, I do want to inform you of the risks that are associated with it. Issues with the heart and lungs are infrequent, but those are the things that we monitor the closest as well in order to keep you safe. A device is going to be used to help you breathe during your surgery, and as a result, there's a risk of lip or tooth damage. We've also asked you not to eat or drink anything for several hours because there's a risk for the stomach contents to come up and go into the lungs. That risk is reduced on an empty stomach, but we do like to be cautious. Do you have any questions for me about the things that we've discussed? Uh, No, I don't think so. I think you were pretty thorough. All right. Well, it was certainly a a pleasure to meet you, and uh, I'll be seeing you shortly, all right? Okay, sounds good. All right. So then you're going to either head back to the OR to get ready to receive your patient or help bring back the patient yourself. And if that's the case, go ahead and make sure that the OR nurse and the other staff members in the OR are ready for that to happen. Yeah, that's awesome. So, Ashley, I'll jump in. I think that that was a pretty good rundown in terms of the pre-op assessment, kind of how the conversation goes how you described what was going to happen from an anesthesia perspective, and then a little bit about the risk. So for the SRNAs out there, that conversation is going to vary over time in your anesthesia career. So I would just encourage the listeners to you know, pay attention to how other people run through their pre-op conversations with patients, and just know that you're going to develop your own style over time. So this is something that you will get better at, you will get more comfortable with, um, it's just something that takes practice. So thanks for walking through that, Ashley. I think that's going to help folks out a lot. Yeah, that was some awesome additional encouragement, John. Thanks. All right, let's jump into induction here. So let's assume this patient is 70 kilograms with no significant health history. He's rolled into the OR on a stretcher and placed next to that OR bed. I, at this point, like to have two pairs of gloves on, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Go ahead and turn your oxygen up to 10 liters or so at this point. And you want to go ahead and help out the OR personnel that are moving the patient over to the to the OR bed. Take that bag of IV fluids that was probably hanging on the stretcher and hang it on the IV pole next to the OR table. Open up that roller clamp and make sure that your IV fluids are flowing well. Um, make sure that your patient is properly positioned on the bed so that your pharyngeal axes align, be that with a ramp, um, the, that gel donut or a foam donut, a regular pillow or the foam pillow, whatever you have available and whatever you want to set yourself up for success. Connect that blood pressure cuff. That'll be the first monitor that you want to connect. It can take a while to get a first blood pressure reading. Um, and make sure that you notice that the cuff is going to go ahead and go off every three to five minutes. Next, go ahead and connect the EKG leads and the SAT probe. Make sure that those are functioning as well and you're getting good readings on those. And it's really important here to keep maintaining communication with the patient during this time. They're probably they're probably more nervous than you if that's possible. Um, so continuing that open communication can help calm their nerves some. So you want to bring the bed to the height that you're going to want it at for intubation, and that correct height is right at your xiphoid process. 
So, uh, again, that's another piece there that'll set you up for success because if you're bending over and, and leaning and getting in all kinds of crazy positions to try to get a good view, you're going to have a lot more difficulty than if you just did it the first time and put the bed at the height that it needs to be. You're going to also want to make sure that your suction is functional and within reach. Hopefully you've already got it in that spot that you want it to be in before you came in the room. Make sure your anesthesia machine is close enough to you so that it's within arm's reach. And then do, do a quick last minute check that everything is exactly how you want it because right now at this point in time it is all about you and the patient and all about the safety of the patient. So make sure you've got all your pieces in place how you want them. Make sure the patient's vital signs are where you want them before you proceed. And when you're satisfied, go ahead and pick up your mask, tell the patient what you're about to do, ask them to tip their chin up and begin pre-oxygenating the patient by holding that mask lightly over their face. Look over to your monitor and make sure that your end title is working before you proceed. You can either pre-oxygenate your patient for three minutes or instruct them to give you four vital capacity breaths, making sure that your FEO2 is greater than 80% before proceeding. If possible, ask someone who's in the room to hold that mask for you while you begin to administer your induction medications. If no one happens to be available, use that circuitry to hold the mask over the patient's face while you administer your medications. You'll want to alcohol off the IV tubing port you're going to be using. I also really like to tape my tubing to the pillow so that it doesn't fall uh, during, during induction. Um, it's a good habit to make sure that you can see the IV before pushing any medications to ensure that it's functioning appropriately. It's not great to have pushed a whole stick of propofol into an infiltrated IV. And, you know, they just did get it put in in pre-op or you put it in yourself, but things happen and IVs get moved and dislodged. So just go ahead and have them bring their arm on the outside of those nice warm blankets and make sure that you can see it. An example of medications I'd typically give to, uh, say, that healthy 70-kilogram patient undergoing a general anesthetic with an endotracheal tube would be 50 to 100 micrograms of fentanyl, or something I've really liked to start doing lately is give Esmolol instead of a narcotic, and that'd be about 35 milligrams for this patient at a 0.5 milligram per kilogram dose. And that's in order to decrease that sympathetic response. Next, you'd want to give maybe 50 to 100 milligrams of lidocaine and 175 milligrams of propofol. And that's at a, um, a dose range of 1 to 2.5 milligrams per kilogram. And those drugs can be given in fairly quick succession. While giving the medications, again, I want to reiterate here, it's really nice to keep talking to the patient. Tell them that you're giving the medications, that they might feel them in their IV. Um, it, it might not be a great idea to tell them that it's going to hurt because then it probably will hurt them. So just let them know that you are, in fact, giving them the medications and leave it at that. After giving the propofol, take back the mask from whoever was holding it for you uh, on the patient's face and go ahead and hold it a little more firmly in your left hand. Put your right hand on the reservoir bag to feel. Look at the end tidal CO2 waveform as well as their tidal volume in order to observe for that apnea. When you believe that your patient is well anesthetized, you're going to want to check for that lash reflex by gently touching the patient's eyelashes. If it's absent, 
Make sure the patient's eyelids are all the way closed and, and put your eye tape over their eyelids. There is some variation in practice at this point. Some anesthetists go ahead and administer the paralytic at this point, while some like to check ventilations first. So since many of you listening have, have not done this before, we'll, we'll discuss checking ventilations in order to be conservative. So at this point, while keeping the mask firmly on your patient's face, close that APL valve to around 10 to 20 centimeters of water or so, or whatever you need to get a good, uh, a good ventilation in and attempt to ventilate your patient. So you'll observe for that chest rise and tidal CO2 confirmation and an adequate tidal volume. And remember, don't manually ventilate your patient at pressures higher than 20 centimeters of water. Um, if you do, you can cause gastric inflation. And you can find that number on the screen of newer anesthesia machines as the peak airway pressure or on a traditional pressure gauge near your APL valve on an older machine. So if this previous criteria is achieved, it's time to administer your paralytic. If not, attempt to reposition your patient's head or insert that air oral airway that you've got nearby in order to adequately ventilate your patient. 0.6 milligrams per kilogram of rock uranium, so about 45 milligrams for this patient, would be an appropriate intubating dose of your paralytic. The onset of that rock uranium is around one to two minutes, so go ahead and continue to ventilate your patient and ensure you've got that adequate tidal volume, adequate oxygen saturations, and, and tidal CO2. Here at this point, it's an option to turn on your anesthetic gas uh, on, on a lower setting while ventilating in order to keep that patient anesthetized during intubation. Um, it should at this point become easier to ventilate your patient at the end of that two minutes, so now it's time to intubate. I want you to note that we set this up as a normal induction and intubation. There's obviously a difficult airway algorithm that we haven't discussed, but you should have a plan in place for that situation and hopefully have a copy of that algorithm at hand just in case that you need it. All right, so we've gone through that whole induction sequence and you have something to reference back to here. I'm really hoping that it'll be helpful for you guys to come back and listen to, to get you prepared for those clinical situations we're getting into now. So we'll jump into intubation. Turn that anesthetic gas off if you happen to turn it on during induction. Take that mask off your patient's face. Reach back to your workstation on the anesthesia machine and get your endotracheal tube. You can either hand it to whoever to whoever's helping you or you can put it on the patient's chest. Just make sure it's somewhere you can reach it yourself. Get your laryngoscope and open it. Hold it in your left hand. Gently tip back the patient's head to allow room for a wide mouth opening. But don't crank it back too far. You want to keep in mind that the neck obviously has a range of motion and we don't want to get any crazy maneuvers going on here. So use the thumb and middle finger of your right hand and insert them on the right side of your patient's mouth. Place them as far back into the mouth as possible. The goal here is to get your fingertips as far back on the teeth or gums as they can go. And then you're going to what, what we call scissor open the mouth as far as it'll go. So you're gonna push your fingers in, in opposing directions in order to, to widely open your patient's mouth. I'm gonna use the MAC laryngoscope as an example because it's a really common blade for, for beginners to use. So with that laryngoscope in your left hand, insert the blade on the right side of the mouth and sweep the tongue out of the way. 
Make sure the blade is inserted far enough into the mouth before attempting to lift. I really suggest inserting the blade as far as it'll go because it's definitely much easier to back out slowly with your blade in order to get your view. Because if you don't start deep enough, you'll have to stop, let the head down, reinsert your blade again to regain the depth, and, and that's kind of time consuming. So another really important thing to keep in mind is that before you lift, uh, make sure that your patient's lips aren't stuck between the blade and their teeth. When you um, pre-oxidate them and ventilate them, you really dry their lips out and they can easily get stuck in between their teeth. And then you can quickly prevent any lip damage just by doing that really quick sweep with your finger around their teeth to make sure that that's not the case. Now you're going to want to keep your wrist straight and lift with your bicep in an upward and out outward motion toward where the wall and the ceiling meet. And you definitely don't want to rock back on the patient's teeth, so just keep that forward, outward, and upward motion. It's a, it's a really good practice to actually speak out loud about what the structures of the airway are that you do or do not see. So it's totally okay to put the blade in and say, I don't see anything yet, but just keep talking because... I, I really think it gives your preceptors more confidence in what you're doing um, if you do speak out loud like this. So for example, okay, I've just put the blade in. Okay, I see pink pharyngeal tissue. Okay, now I see the tip of the epiglottis, but not the cords yet. Okay, I can see the arytenoids. Okay, now I can see the cords. I have a grade one view and I'm ready for my tube. So once you see the vocal cords, it's really important not to look away from your view. So with your right hand, grab that tube either from whoever is helping you or get it yourself. Insert the tube into the mouth on the right side and make sure you take care not to drag it along the teeth because if you do, you can damage that cuff. So when the tip of the tube is between the cords, ask whoever's helping you to remove the stylet. Don't advance it any further with that stylet intact because you can really actually damage the patient's trachea. So with the stylet out, advance that tube until you see the cuff go just past the cords about a centimeter or two. And note what centimeter mark that tube was at. For example, 21 centimeters at the corner of the mouth. Um, you're going to want to carefully remove the blade from the patient's mouth just as carefully as you put it in because you could cause damage on the way out too. So remember I told you guys at the beginning I like to wear two pairs of gloves. I like to remove that top used pair of gloves now just so you're not touching all your stuff with that pair of gloves that you had inside your patient's mouth. So I like to pull off that outside pair of gloves around the blade so I can set it down without, again, getting more things dirty without needing to. So you'll inflate the cuff now at this point with that syringe on that pilot balloon. Remove the mask from the circuit. Connect it to your tube, close your APL valve to about 10 to 20 centimeters of water or whatever it took for you to ventilate the, the patient the first time. You'll probably, that's probably a good starting point to go from and you'll give some breaths. You'll want to look for that condensation in the tube, bilateral chest rise and tidal CO2 and then go ahead and listen to the lungs bilaterally and over the abdomen to make sure that your placement is correct. Uh, after that, open up your APL valve so you're not caught putting your patient on manual later with the APL valve closed and your patient trying to breathe against that closed valve. Place your patient on the appropriate vent setting and turn your anesthetic gas on. Securely tape your tube in place and you'll for sure want to ask your preceptor for some tips and tricks on that so that your tube won't go anywhere and that you're not pinching your patient's lip either. 
After your tube's secure, adjust your tidal volume, your anesthetic gas rate, your fresh gas flow. For Stevo in a stable patient, for example, I generally use one liter of air and one liter of oxygen. And then go ahead and decide if you'd like to adjust your IV fluid rate at this point as well. All right, so you guys did it. You've successfully set up, pre-opt, induced, and intubated your patient. It's really our hope that this podcast has served to reduce some of these anxieties associated with being a new anesthesia provider and that you guys are going to be able to go into your new clinical environment with some confidence. Ashley, that's awesome. I just want to jump in there with a couple of other points to sound off on this podcast. I, I love your rundown of, of each phase, really, from machine setup to uh, preoperative assessment, giving the story to the patient about what's going to happen what to do once you get in the room, all the way through induction and intubation. I think globally, as SRNAs think about this, keep in mind it can be really difficult when you're just starting out to have that kind of third-person view of yourself. But think about that as you're going through clinical. How do you sound? How do you look? Uh, keep in mind that you want to be safe. This is uh, One of my CRNA friends down in Texas says this a lot. You know, First priority, you need to be safe, but you also need to look good doing whatever you're doing. So think about what are the steps involved in getting the job done, but you want to look smooth while you're doing it. One thing that will help you to remember that is the adage that slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So even though you're trying to be time efficient, don't rush through this process. Slow yourself down so you remember all of the steps in terms of you know, logging into the patient chart, turning your gas flows up, laying things out, opening the medication drawer out, setting things up in a way that you can grab them easily. That it may seem like you're going at a snail's pace, or but if you go slow, you'll be smooth, and if you're smooth, you'll ultimately end up being fast. Keep those things in mind, and hopefully, this podcast will be very helpful to you as you're getting started in anesthesia school. And Ashley, this is something I've wanted to record for a really long time and I'm so glad that you picked this out as one of the topics for the series and I think you did a really nice job walking through it. Nice job. Thanks John.